Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This is week free of Spooktober, and our topic is your choice, so I'll let you uh, do the introduction. Uh, Today we are reading Alien the Illustrated Story, um, comic adaptation of the movie Alien, the Ridley Scott film. Uh, it's by Archie Goodwin and Walter Simonson, which was the exciting thing when I was looking for stuff for this month. Yeah, until a couple months ago, when you discovered it, I had never heard of this. I'm a relatively recent convert into being an Alien fan. I'd say probably over like the last six months or so was when I was finally watching most of the movies for the first time and am now fully into it. You have a much longer history, right? Yeah, I've been kind of obsessed with the the core of the series, which is the series of films, um, since high school. And yeah, I only fairly recently, like the last year or so, started looking at any alien stuff outside of the movies. Mostly because the main thing I saw was Dark Horse comics that don't interest me because they're all Aliens comics rather than Alien comics. And so it's just a bunch of Marines and guns shooting stuff instead of the things that actually interest me about the series. Well, the thing, too, about those is that they almost all look bad, whether I mean that they look bad bad or if they're just so visually stale and generic that it's just like you can't make comics spinning out of the best movies there are and then just half-ass it and expect me to care well that and like they misunderstand what makes aliens a good movie which is not actually all of the colonial marine stuff you mean it's women fighting aliens and these really well-done survival horror scenarios and it's not just a bunch of space military with guns it's not the space force aspect of it yeah the the heinland shit is the problem they they lean towards the highland stuff and i'm like that was backdrop to what was going on with ripley in that story anyway yeah but this is alien and it's just the first movie as a comic, it was published in Heavy Metal Magazine back in 79, so I guess, yeah, around... I must be very close to the film 79 as well, so... Because basically, um, Star Wars came out, made a shit ton of money, and all the studios just grabbed whatever sci-fi scripts anyone had been proposing and threw money at it, which is how we got a massive budget, hard uh, sci-fi horror film. In 1979. I mean, not massive, big budget. Yeah, like, I think it speaks to why we hadn't heard of this before, that it's so specific time-wise and came out so concurrent with the movie, because this, we're reading a reprint from Titan Comics, and, like, the publication date is, like, their first printing was in 2012, And when I was, like, looking the comic up, I saw a bunch of stuff about, like, what a bestseller it was back when it came out. But then I imagine, from what I could tell, didn't get a lot of reprints in the between time. Which I suppose, you know, just explains how this was both A, a hit, and B, something we had never heard of. Even though it looks great, and 
is right up both of our alleys. I guess it's just one of those things that sort of falls through the cracks when things go out of print. That and the shift in a lot of, like, the at least a lot of the stuff that has been produced that's, like, alien spin-off stuff is just aliens spin-off stuff specifically. Like, Alien came out, and this comic came out, and that was kind of it until James Cameron came in and made Aliens, which is when you started getting the comics and it developed, like, a following as a franchise. I think that before that it was that really good movie that came out in 1979. Yeah, I like Aliens, the film, a lot, and, like, there are other things in the franchise that I do like. But it certainly, I guess, marks the transition between Alien, just a great movie, and then Aliens, we're bringing these bitches back and we're making a whole franchise out of it. As opposed to just like this in the original movie feel more sort of like self-contained work. Yeah, I don't think it's even something Cameron intended to do. It's just like that movie, one of the things that it does is it expands the world out. Um, it adds, for example, the 59-year time skip. You immediately like, well, what else could have happened in that 59 years? You have, um, you know, much, you see a lot more of, like, the government and the way that the government interacts with the company. And I think Wayland yutani is actually named in that, maybe? I lose track. They mostly just call it the company in the first one. I don't know whether there's a Wayland yutani logo anywhere. I don't think there is, but I'm not 100% sure, so Alien fans don't yell at me for being wrong. I Well, part of it is it's the, the Wayland part is a reference to British Leyland, which was like car manufacturers in Britain in the 60s and 70s, if I remember correctly. So that that's very Ridley Scott, because he's British, and I don't think James Cameron would pull that reference, but also I'm like, I don't remember it being an alien. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, in the film and in this comic, you know, based off the film, relatively concurrent to it in publication, the word xenomorph is nowhere to be found. You know, we just get alien, like, extraterrestrial. Yeah, yeah. that was all just, that was a thing for aliens. It is a perfect organism, but we don't have a specific name yet. Which, honestly, like, it works in contributing to just the... This first crew of the Nostromo has never heard of these before. Xenomorphs aren't a thing yet. They have no reason to have a name for it. To them, it is truly the unknown in a way that I don't think it ever gets to be in the later films because at least Ripley has heard of them, whereas here we truly get, what the fuck is that alien shit? What the fuck? Yeah, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I suppose before we dive more into actually discussing the comic itself, um, we mentioned Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson earlier. I'll go ahead and make sure to mention we also have coloring credits to Walt Simonson, as well as Louise Simonson, Deborah Pedlar, Polly Law, and Bob LaRose, with lettering and design credits to John Workman, uh, edited by Charles Lippincott. Screenplay by Dan O'Bannon for the actual original movie, which this is obviously heavily referencing. I think most of the dialogue is just straight from the film. And then that was based on a story by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusset. Did you know that the original screenplay, all the characters are written as gender neutral? 
I did not. I feel like I remember, like, wasn't it not known until relatively late in, like, casting? Like, wasn't Ripley originally maybe going to be a man, or at least not definitively a woman? Yeah, so Dan O'Bannon wrote it so that anyone could be played by pretty much anyone and didn't really specify anything like that in the script. He was surprised by the choice of casting Ripley as a woman, but thought that it looked really great in the final film. But, like, he hadn't... That wasn't a thing that was in mind when they were writing it. He just wrote everyone pretty much neutrally. Yeah, which I suppose by... 1979 standards was already a bit of a step in a progressive direction of being like well they could potentially not be men and then thankfully we got Sigourney Weaver and we don't need to explain to you listener that she turned it out I assume if you're listening to this you've probably seen the movies and you know damn well that she turned it out but if you haven't stopped listening Go and watch Alien, and just for fun, watch Aliens as well. Um, Sigourney Weaver is so good in this role, she got nominated for an Oscar for Aliens, which is a sci-fi horror action movie, which just doesn't happen. Yeah. Also, like, the reason I put these movies off for years is I was like, it's gonna be too scary and I'm a crybaby. And, like, I can't speak for anyone's tolerance, but, like... I think the effects are dated enough that, like, I think it still looks good, but I think you can tell that it's fake enough that it shouldn't be too terrifying, so there's no excuse. Go watch it. There's only one CGI shot in the entirety of the first three movies because they're just old enough. It's in the third one, too. Yeah, I'll talk a bit more about, like, CGI versus effects once we get to, like, some of the corresponding scenes in the book, but... You told me you have thoughts about the very opening of this graphic novel with just literally the title text. So if you've seen the movie, in that there's a very great little title sequence where the word alien in a pretty simple font forms slowly out of pieces over like a panning shot of a planet. Very eerie, sort of slow title reveal. And that's great. But you know what they could have done? They could have opened the film on a massive splash of the word alien created out of xenomorph stuff. Like, um, you know, I'm going to throw some credit to H.R. Giger as well, who really should be listed as a creator on here because he designed the alien and his, like, aesthetic is all over this book because he designed half the things that this book is about. Um, And it's pretty fucking metal. Uh, Simonson decided... Or, or possibly, well, guess it could have been Goodwin, but Simonson drew Alien out of, like, bits of the ship, bits of the creature, bits of the space jockey, which is the elephant-looking thing in the chair. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's like, when I look at it, I'm not even really, like, owning in on specific bits of... Like, that's this thing, this is this thing. So much as it's just like there's just so much texture and my eye just moves around. And, you know, like, it looks eerie. Parts of it, you know, are a bit sexual because of just xenomorph stuff. It's, like, mysterious, but, like, foreboding, like... Lots of penetration. Yeah, lots of penetration. Horror penetration. Alien is about... More mouths than there should be, but no eyes. Yes, yes. 
And it's all also specifically the tones used or these like tans and browns that it all just looks really cool. Yeah, the the in like the movie, the xenomorph normally looks kind of like a slick black, but you can't really do that in a 1979 comic with the way that they had to be colored. And this was a good decision. I think this still gets like the vibe of what like Giga's work looks like, which um, just Google some of that man's stuff. Absolutely insane. Uh, it, it all just sort of looks like what if the alien, but sometimes even more so. Yeah, I think the coloring choices all work. We'll get to it a bit more when we see the actual beast on panel. But in terms of like, okay, how do we add color to this for the contemporary printing sort of issue? And highlighting the black with like tans and browns makes sense in terms of like... It's still a neutral tone, you know? I feel like if you did something like a bright red or something, it would feel like too extreme of a shift versus versus the tans are still, yeah, just a relatively neutral color that also can sort of lend itself to blending into a background. Yeah, and I think this fits in with the color choices of the film as well. Like, a lot of the planet, when they arrive on it, it's very, like, there's there's some brown tones to it. Um, whereas, for example, in Aliens, everything sort of goes blue. Yeah, it's such a good movie. <laughs> They're such good movies. Speaking of the movie, uh, the comic opens the same way as the movie. Uh, we get shots of the incredibly detailed little um, cockpit area of the ship. And when I say cockpit, that's definitely the wrong term. It's the control room? Hang on, what do they- the bridge. It's a bridge, for fuck's sake. I can tell you I will be of no use in determining the correct ship language, so I'll be leaving it entirely to you. On a ship as big as this, it's the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. A cockpit implies that this is a fighter ship. This is not. This is the size of, like, a couple of very large buildings because it's like a refinery thing. But we get some really fun lettering for um, the computers turning on. Which, like, in the movie, you know, there's all, you get all these little close-ups of the computer screens flicking on and text going over them. And in this, we get a little computerized font. It looks like the font that K9 has written on the side of him in Doctor Who. Um, and it goes click, and then there's a whole bunch of binary, and then there's just more. And some of it's in red, and then some of it seems to be responding to it in yellow. Um, and, like, different screens and lights are clearly turning on because we see more lights reflected in the space helmets that are sat in the empty bridge. It's great. Yeah, it just looks really nice. The coloration, again, it all just pops really well with the use of the really bright red and yellow here, like, stands out against the tones of the background of all the machinery, and it's all just really lovely. And essentially, after that, we move into... The crew of the Nostromo being woken up from their hypersleep. And this is basically going to apply to virtually everything about this book. It's pretty much straight up adaptation. I would say there's really no notable changes other than if you counted just like some things feeling a bit faster in terms of just like what can we cut, what can we shorten for time in the new medium, but it's the same old 
crew if you've seen the movie, which I feel like anytime I talk about the story, it's going to be me talking about both the comic and the movie, which feels unavoidable. But I appreciate the fact that this crew is so small. You know, we have seven people and one perfect little kitty. And I feel like that just contributes both here and in the movie to the sense of horror of how quickly things can go wrong when there's just so few people to back you up and their numbers just keep dropping. Oh, and they're all very distinctive immediately. Like, every single character has such a well-defined personality, and each actor in the film and the dialogue in this really does, like, you immediately get a sense of who everyone is, which is nice considering we get about, like, in the comic, a couple pages of them together. But before we move on, one thing I want to point out here, this is going to dive into some thematic stuff with both the movie and first the comic. The arrangement of the sleeping parts, which is not a thing I think I've ever clocked in the film because the way that it's drawn here is just not something that Matt lines up with the way like it was shot in the film. In the film, we never really get a shot of them from above, but in the comic, they're drawn from above and the way they're arranged looks like a face hugger. I had not clocked that until you mentioned it, but yeah, the way that there's like one of the seven sort of at the base and on the sides, the rest of them sort of splay out. Yeah. The metaphorical connection of the ship, which is the company, to the alien visually here, just something I never noticed because you just don't see it from that angle in the film. Like, I, it's definitely arranged like this in the movie. So this is there. So that's really cool. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, and that was when I read this comic, I was like, oh, damn. I've still only seen it, I believe, the one time. I Part of me was like, should I rewatch it before reading this, or should I try and let the book sort of, like, you know, be allowed to stand on its own? And, like, I guess I worried that if I rewatched it last night, that then I would be too critical of, like, well, this part should have been a little longer. You know, I guess I wanted to go in... And trying not be too nitpicky about things like that. But with regards to the cast, and you mentioned them being distinctive, that applies to the visuals as well, where like, one thing a lot of artists struggle with, you know, is just like character differentiation. But Simonson does a great job here of like, all of these people have their own facial structures, their own expressions, their own body language. Like, everything about each of these people is distinct. Well, he's also doing that while working with actor likenesses, but managing to at no point, like, do anything that feels like it's obviously photo-referenced or anything that gets Uncanny Valley. There's no LaRocca face here. Not to call out Salvador LaRocca, but there is no LaRocca face here, which there absolutely is in the current Alien comics being published by Marvel. Yeah, I mean, at this point after the first sort of, like, photo reference comic we covered on the show was Starf Vader. I think Salvador La Roca is now our go-to negative comparison with anything like this. But, yeah, it's like... They look like the actors, and they all look distinct from each other in the comic, and they all look like they were just designed and drawn for this comic, which is a massive achievement. Yeah, like, if you hadn't seen the movie... I think you could read this and you would never be taken out at any point of being like, that's so obviously a photograph. Like these 
look like drawings, which maybe is a stupid way to put it, but I'm trying to think of a way to phrase like, you know, like when you see some photo referenced art of people, you know, sometimes the way the face is translated, you look and you go, oh, they did try to just trace a photograph and it looks off. Versus like if I handed this to someone who had no knowledge of the movie, somehow they lived under a rock, Kimmy Schmidt came out her bunker and I gave her this book. I think she could read this and not have a second thought about like Uncanny Valley or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, which it, it's just shocking. And Simonson is capturing the actors' performances as well in the art. Like there's a panel here of the engineer Parker where he is doing the exact same pose that he does in the film when he's talking about his bonus situation, which he's very concerned about the bonus situation. That's the only thing you really need to know about Parker. And as someone who's watched the film more times than I actually am sure about, that's 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 what he did at this point. And it looks right, but it's not photo referenced. It's a drawing that looks like the actor very distinctly. He's doing the same thing the actor's doing. He's recreating the performance that the actor gave and not just working from the script and it just looks like good comic art yeah like it all feels really natural and character defining like there's what he's doing with like his arm on the table there's just like slouched body language and some of the other characters there's like the glances around the room it all just does so much to characterize which i think helps a lot with how little page time some of the earlier deaths get in this book by necessity of how few pages you know they're allowed to have i think the fact that we get simonson doing things like this helps a lot it's like simonson is really keying in on like what specific details to make sure to convey to try and make the most of the page count and make as much of the movie translate as he can yeah Oh, we should probably, um, for the listeners, just outline who we actually have here. So there's Kane, who is, uh, that's John Hurt. We all know what happens to John Hurt in this movie. Um, Lambert, who's the ship's navigator and the only woman aside from Ripley. Dallas, who's the captain, the science officer, Ash, Ripley, um, and then Parker, who I already brought up as the engineer, and the technician, Brett. And then Jones, the cat. Jonesy. Yes, Jonesy is amazing. I will ask, do we know, with regards to Ripley, what does warrant officer actually mean? Not a fucking clue. When That's the captain's like... not on the ship, and also I think when Kane is not on the ship, she's in charge, so I guess she's third in command? Yeah, like, it definitely feels like she's on the upper half of seniority, but I'm also like... Her main job seems to be yelling at Parker. <laughs> Yeah, she seems to be sort of a move around and just do what needs to be done to keep everything flowing to include like giving orders and helping out with various things. She seems to be a very like mobile, I guess, flexible position, but one of like authority. Yeah, all she does in the film in terms of like ship work is not open a door, yell at Parker and Brett, and then take charge once every once dallas is dead that's that's kind of it that's like the so yeah she's middle management yeah as with the film we have our crew awakened from stasis start chit-chatting 
having little fights about the bonuses, and they realize that they're not where they thought they would be because the ship has picked up a signal that they're not quite sure what it is, what the origin is, but they're just like, oh, is this a distress beacon? Is this a call for help? And essentially, they are rerouting to go visit this planet that the signal is coming from. And so out in space, we get to see just whenever you can get Walt Simonson to draw a spaceship. Now, Walt Simonson is drawing the ship from the movie. So this looks like the design look of the other designer on the movie whose name I can't remember. I'm sorry, you're not as insanely memorable as H.R. Giga, but like, good job. Because that one of the fun things about Alien is they actually had two production designers. Giga designed everything to do with the alien, so the planet the ship, the alien, the space jockey, all that stuff. And then the other guy, whose name I cannot remember, (laughs) designed all of the human stuff so that the contrast between them would be as great as possible. Which, amazing choice. And all of the designs for the stuff in Alien, including the human designs, is, like, really fucking good. But I should have... I should look this up. Hang on. I feel bad now. (laughs) Michael Seymour. There we go. Um, so, you know, we get some really cool pages of the smaller ship that's, like, the landing ship. So, like, they're tugging an oil refine a space oil refinery, basically, is their job. Like, these guys are space truckers, except it's the whole refinery, because it's space and you can do that. Um, but they have a smaller ship, which is the one that they're in right now anyway, that they detach. By smaller, it's still pretty big. It's bigger than, like, most sci-fi ships still. Like, it's a small building. But they detach that, and it flies down to the planet, where they fuck up the landing (laughs) and damage it. There's a really fun, like, the automatopoeia for the part of the ship that's hitting the ground and exploding. You know, normally you'll get, like, a little boom in a fun sort of font. In this case, it's Bram, with two M's, written as a cube with BRA on one line and MM on the other. And then that cube contains the explosion. So you can see, like, it's a very odd choice, but it's cool. It's like essentially another panel, but that panel is all explosion and it's superimposed over the existing panel of the ship landing. Yeah, which like on a space, like physical space on the page level, it works in, like, making the explosion take up less room with just, you know, what we've mentioned about just, like, there's a limited page count, but it does so in a way that still, like, carries the sense of impact and force and still feels cool. And just, like, the contrast and the coloration between the yellows and red of just, like, the exploding is brighter than the comparatively muted tones uh before and after it in the crash and yeah it's just cool um a very good consistent job done by a massive team of colorists yeah i will also say before we dive into the next bit plot wise with regards to everything we said about the space and spaceship shots this is again gonna sound like a dumb descriptor or just like a duh thing but like Walt Simonson is the sort of artist I look at and I go, he loves to draw. By which I mean, he has one of those styles where he will take the opportunity to fit in so many lines 
but it doesn't look too busy. Like he knows how to do it appropriately and in ways that feel correct and like add to the gravity of the situation of say like the outer space shots of the ships. There's so many teeny little lines for just like all of that technological equipment Within the ship, we get, you know, just like lots of different lines and shading across the pipes and the interior architecture of everything. I always love, both in this book and in his other work outside of it, the way he sort of draws like energy and motion and just like motion lines and the way that things crackle or that like wind blows or, you know, fog spreads, just any sort of motion. It's just exciting to look at. I just think he's great. Yeah, Simonson is an all-time classic artist. I'm surprised that this is the first thing we've done drawn by Simonson, considering he's, like, very much done a lot of amazing classic work in several characters that we really love. We will definitely do, at some point, the beginning of his forerun of Better Ray Bill. Yeah. Because you haven't read that, right? I've read the start. I haven't gone around to reading all of it yet. Okay. It's on my list. I went and read uh, his X Factor run with uh, Louise Simonson instead. Because <laughs> I did my big X-Men read rather than reading Thor. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, they fuck up the landing. And the engineer and the technician and Ripley stay behind on the ship to work on patching things up while the rest of the team is going to go out and they've landed near enough to the distress signal or like the potential distress signal, you know, the mysterious broadcast that they can walk to it. It's walking distance. And essentially they're going to be like on calm. They have like calm links to call back to Ripley and co on the ship. But yeah, we just have team fix the ship and team go out on this alien planet that no one knows anything about and just hope it works out okay. And you could never pay me enough. There is nothing you could ever do to make me be one of the first Discovery feet stepping on a goddamn planet. We know how this goes. Especially not a shitty planet like this one, which you don't see that much of it in this. Um, But if you look at the design in the movie... It is mostly made of dicks, because it is an HR Giga planet. Well, now you're making it sound more appealing. (laughs) I mean, they're like giant stone ones that look like they're melting, but sure. (laughs) Anyway, um, I should also mention, we talked a little bit about the computer font earlier, but I like the way, I like all the lettering in this, even just the standard lettering is just functional and it's like an old school font for comic lettering that I like. But there's parts where it's like juxtaposed as like part of the art. In the case of what I'm looking at right now being sort of like the jumbled text from the broadcast that they've come to investigate where it's like big and bold and just really sells like you know, like, urgent mystery message, and I just think it's utilized really well. Yeah, I didn't mention that earlier, but kind of the the way that the um, signal has been portrayed, the two times that we sort of hear it, um, yes, it's this red text that reaches all the way across the page, interrupting the flow of the comic, um, and then it's, like, broken up, sort of 
not not shattered glass, more computer glitch effect where it's like a lot of straight lines and like boxes used to break it up. It's really fucking cool. Yeah, it's everything about this is cool. You made a really good pick this week for a change. This is this is the the healing from that bionicle from that second arc. This is the healing from sins past. I did sins past, and then I picked up two things that we were lukewarm on. This is the opposite of lukewarm. Regardless, this is nice. Like even you know, just like I'm trying not to go on about literally every detail and keep us here all day. But I just look at every detail and I'm like, oh, wow, I really like the way Walt Simonson drew their spacesuits. I like the way that the sun is setting. I just like almost everything about it. Um, oh, speaking of which, they are radioing back. So the team who are out there is Dallas, Lambert, and Kane. And um, Ash, the science officer, is still on the ship as well with Ripley and Parker and Brett. Um, just gonna be important later. But they arrive at where the signal's coming from, and you turn the page, and we get this massive two-page spread reveal of the alien ship, which, yeah, that feels appropriate. This was coming out in, I assume, small installments on, like, a weekly or monthly, I don't know how Heavy Metal magazine published back in those days. But it was coming out in, like, short installments on a regular basis. And you have such a limited page count on, like, those magazine comics. So choosing to do a double page spread, you have to pick something that really earns that page space. And the reveal of the ship fucking earns it. Yeah, I think this is the moment. Like, if you even only had to have one, or only had... Like, if you only got to have one, even, I think this would be the one of just, like, here is where we've definitively hit something alien. You know, both as a reader and the characters, it's like, never seen anything like this before. And I think the choices that, again, Simonson is making really help enhance that, too, or, like, just even the sort of line work that we get on the ship versus the sky of the background really contrast each other where like the lines across the sky are like more flowy and loose versus we get whereas we get just sort of more textured and harder lines on the spaceship and you know it's that classic green against these like hot pinks and oranges of the sky it's like imposing and pretty and in the context of just you know rolling up to a spaceship just like don't go in there don't walk up in that. Don't enter this ship's three vagina hole entrances, um, because the ship is, once you look at it enough, you realize is designed to look like a woman's legs with no clothes on. Good you old keep, HR Giga. <laughs> you keep saying that Alien is sexual in design. Maybe you're just a pervert. I don't see anything sexual here anywhere. <laughs> no. Okay, well, I've seen those. <laughs> You don't know what I've seen. But yeah, everything is just like, H.R. Geiger is a freak. I don't mean that as an insult, just a neutral statement. The original alien costume used an actual human skull in it. H.R. Geiger is a freak. 
and I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> you need to start working on your German accent. You, you, you need to watch the behind the scenes for those movies. It's something real special. I do need to. It's very rare that you get good behind the scenes documentaries on like a studio franchise series of movies. And for these movies, you actually do for the first four, at least shocking and wonderful. That alien anthology set is astonishing. Back on the ship where they've entered through the supposed vagina holes. This part feels very fast. Like this feels like one of the parts where they were like, okay, we're going to cram a lot in real quick to speed things along. Because they very quickly make their way to what are space jockey is. Yeah. Which like... The choice, I think, heading into an Alien comic is do you do your double-page spread for the reveal of the ship, or do you do it for the reveal of the space jockey, which is the dead alien guy in the big chair with, like, the gun thing, or whatever it is? The the HR Giga vaguely phallic shape with, like, a lot of lines and ribbing and biomechanical detail on it. Yeah. I think between, like, if I could only have one... I would go if the ship, but I do definitely feel like ideally the space jockey would have got a little more page time because it's very quickly just like, oh, damn. And then very quickly, gotta go. You know, like a slightly bigger version of this, I think we would have got like at least a splash page of this bitch. Yeah, in the movie, weirdly, like the movie, I'd say the equivalent of the two-page splash page moment is actually the space jockey reveal and not the ship reveal. Like, the ship, because the way the movie visualizes the planet is so filled with storms and, like, fog and debris and sand everywhere, but you don't really get a clear shot of the ship from the outside, especially. And then the space jockey, they actually... Remember, they put kids in the spacesuits and, like, made smaller spacesuits for kids for the wide shots... To make the set they made look even bigger in the final product. One of my favorite things about Alien is the architecture and the set work. And you know, you mentioned how there weren't like CGI effects in this movie. And I don't know, someone can call this snobbish if they want, I don't care. But I yearn for old school style movies where I knew that shit was real and it was built and bitches were on the same set together and interacting in this space. And, you know, it's all just so special and cool. And I think that the art here, I don't think we get as much as I would like because of how rushed this scene is. But what we do get, I think Simonson does a good job texturally of giving us a peek at just how weird and freaky all this spooky ship shit is. I'm thinking of the other alien ship that I most know Simonson from, which is X-Factor's alien ship. He spent a lot more time getting all the details of this one down than he ever did for Apocalypse's big old ship. This is a much cooler ship on all levels. Yeah. But yeah, we have the look at, oh damn, that's an alien, and like a humanoid looking one. And then we quickly make our way to the nightmare basement yeah is there a term an official term for these like egg pods that the face huggers come out of 
The eggs. Okay, just the eggs. The, the eggs. Yeah, which, super cool. I'll again shout out specifically the coloration in this sequence, where we have these bright yellows and whites of the illumination of, like, the literal, like, flashlights and, like, headlamp lights against the darkness, and then how it contrasts against the red that erupts when an egg opens up for a face hugger to make. I was gonna say it's first, but it's the only face hugger because this is alien, not aliens. But just that nice bloody red background is very nice. Yeah, because uh, uh, only Kane goes down into the nightmare basement. He repels down and is like, oh, wow, there's a storage area for weird leathery egg things. And then out it pops. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is, I think, one of those cases where I'm like, I do wish that they had more pages to work with to draw this moment out more. But also, given the fact that they had a page to go from, wow, there's eggs to face hugger attack. This is by far, like, the best way you could possibly do it. There's a series of five panels where Kane has moved on from looking at the egg, and it starts to open in the foreground, and Kane turning around and looking at it more closely. Really, really well done. Yeah, like, just expert use of just, like, pacing, of understanding how to perfect the flow of motion in a comic it's really good and yeah bitch gets got and meanwhile back on the ship at some point in all of this there's been the whole oh it might not be a help signal it might be a warning and ripley's just like should we help them i think it's ash is just like by the time we got there it would be too late and they're just waiting for the rest of the team to roll up and this is essentially where we get our power balance arguments of everyone being like let us in or like the field team being like let us in and ripley being like no you stupid bitch you could be contaminated we have to follow procedure and then An alien life form has grafted itself onto him it's a fucking weird thing this is what quarantine is for. And Ash just, even though she is higher authority than he is, he lets them in. Yeah, like while Dallas and Kane are off the ship, Ripley's in charge, and she's supposed to be the one who says whether the door can be opened or not. Ash obviously justifies him saying, well, Dallas said to open the door. And she's like, well, Dallas isn't the captain when he's not on the ship. Ripley follows the rules in, like, the good ways, where she follows all of the safety procedures that you're supposed to follow. Just about one of the only alien movie protagonists who does that. As much as I love the other movies, the other characters take their fucking helmets off as soon as they get on the ground. We can't talk about Prometheus. We can't, we can't go Prometheus. on about it. We can't. We can't. Um... Just to be clear, I love it, but everyone in it's a fucking idiot. Oh, they are so stupid. Like, why are the space truckers actually kind of better at this than the scientists? Anyway, moving on. Um, so we get our first clear shot of the space hugger. Face hugger. Not space hugger. Face hugger. Wow. Some alien fan I am. Um, it's great. Another case of just look at Walt just doing his thing. Absolutely nailing it. All those damn lines, like... When they he... all add something, too. 
Yeah, he makes it look effortless, but just like... He's presumably inking himself here, right? Because we don't have an ink accredited. Yeah, I think so. And like, it certainly like looks like what I'm used to from his work, like what I would expect of him doing it. And just like each line adds something crucial in terms of just like depth and angle and everything. And he's too good. He's better at drawing than anyone has any business being. So from here, if you've seen Alien, you know what happens. They try cutting it off, but it's got blood, acid for blood. So they can't cut it off his face. There's nothing they can really do about it. So they're planning on freezing him when they go back and it's gone and it's left his face. Yeah, and they find like the dead corpse of the face hugger. And after a little while, Ash is just like, hey guys, guess what? He's okay, he's awake. You know, everything's cool. And Jalaro just like, okay, cool. We will take off. The ship goes back into space. Everyone's glad to see Kane looking okay. And they all sit down to eat. And he's just like, well, he's fine until he isn't. And then the ship bursts right the fuck out of his chest. Uh, so literally we get a panel of him saying he doesn't feel right, then two panels of him writhing in pain, a panel of him screaming as we see blood on his chest, and then when you turn the page, the chest burster comes out, it is a full splash page, another case of just like, this moment needs to take up a whole page. Yeah, it's the chest burster coming the fuck out. It's so much blood. This is the reddest page. Yeah, and we get, this is one of a few points where we get a little bit of narration, specifically, eruption, a scarlet shower of flesh, of blood. Like, this is relatively sparse throughout, but every now and then we do get just a little hyper-dramatic uh, narration just to fervor sell it home. Goodwin coming in and being like, oh, I have to do something here. I have to, I have to put some little flourish in or else everyone's only gonna be thinking about what simonson's doing which like the narration is good and like i think you know goodwin is also done probably about as good as you physically could of adapting the script in the film writing wise for a comic of this length but we're just naturally talking about simonson more because it's simonson art you know and the story just at the end of the day is adapted from a pre-existing story. We're going to be talking about the visuals. Yeah, and it's very close to the movie. And, like, the, the choices in adaptation in terms of just condensing it for the comic, I think, yeah, they all make sense. I think every important moment of the film is captured here in some form, which is great. It's one of those things where the fact that we're not talking about his choices specifically is because he did it correctly. It's one of those things where it would mainly stick out if there had been a major negative change, you know? Whereas it's just like, oh, this is functioning perfectly the way it's supposed to be. Okay, he did his job. And yeah, the creature gets loose. Everyone's just like, what the fuck? Uh, the operation to try and find it commences. And the first person to get got is the technician who finds some kind of skin, question mark, and... We got a xenomorph reveal. It 
went from being the size of I don't know what's what's this big a chihuahua. It went from being the size of a chihuahua to being honestly in this panel hilariously huge. Like this is just some artistic license to capture the reveal. Um, this xenomorph, if if this is the actual size of it, it is like ten to fifteen feet tall. Yeah, it reads I think in this book a bit bigger than in the movie, but it works and. We still get some sense of just, like, that dark beast from the movie in terms of, like, there is still a good amount of, like, heavy black in the inking. But otherwise, like, the illuminated parts are much more of these sort of deep browns and tans the way we talked about with the opening just ward alien on the opening pages. And looks pretty cool. It's a xenomorph. I like all the little lines of detail that Simonson puts on the tail. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the alien. It's a great design. This is a great drawing of it. The specific, like, comic storytelling I really love is Brett's scream is represented as a big yellow arg across the page where a panel would be. And then towards the last, the R, R, and G that end it, start getting redder with blood and then where the g is and at the end of the scream is just a huge splatter of blood as brett is the first to be brutally murdered yeah and at this point it's a pretty quick succession of just bitches getting got like you know ripley and co everyone's saying their plans for what they're gonna do but it flows pretty quickly by necessity of page time Everyone's running around just like, oh, we'll try and catch it in the vents, yada yada. But we largely just get a bunch of deaths in quick succession with just... Dallas going into the vents and, you know, they're trying to track it with, like, these motion trackers they have. uh, And their plan is to vent it out into space by, like, cornering it towards the airlocks. But, of course, it converges on Dallas and instead of running away, just takes him. Um, in the case of Dallas, he just disappears, which is frankly even better. I mean, that's a choice from the original screenplay, but I fucking love it. I love that just we don't even know what's going on shit. Yeah, like, sometimes just a body going missing can be as affecting as a body being, like, mutilated or however fucked up. So everyone's like, well, we should just take the shuttlecraft and get out of here, but the shuttlecraft crap for some insane reason it's first of all it's called the narcissus which is a very weird and specific mythological reference that i don't quite get but okay some um, the guy in greek mythology who loved himself so much he uh fell in love with his own reflection i feel like narcissus is never a comparison that one should be making for themselves you know, like, it's one thing to call someone else narcissistic, but, like, making the choice of I'm going to make this reference myself is just, like, huh. It's a weird thing to call your escape pod. I don't know. Anyway, the point is the shuttlecraft only holds three, which is an incredibly dumb decision for a ship with a crew of seven. I guess on the part of the company, the shuttlecraft holding more than three would be too expensive. I guess... But yeah, they're just kind of like, there's a brief argument of what they're going to do of like, oh, are we going to draw straws 
but they're ultimately just like, no, we're going to do what we can do. We're going to try and fucking get this bitch. We're not going to doom one of us to die just yet. Uh, And so now Ripley is in command and she's pissed at Ash because Ash has... If you notice, we haven't really mentioned Ash doing much, and that's because Ash hasn't done much. Ash has been useless. Ash is doing nothing to help at all. Lambert's been running comms. You know, Ripley and Dallas were teaming up. Brett is raging, wanting to kill it because of what happened to Brett. Um, Parker. Parker is raging because uh, he's upset about what happened to Brett, and Ash has been sitting around. So Ripley is going to go and talk to the AI system who's called Mother (laughs) which is one of those things when you first watch the movie you're like wait what the fuck are they talking about it takes like a little while before you realize they're talking about the computer um but then continuing like the weird sexual energy that this series has you go inside Mother because Mother is specifically a room that completely encloses you where you then tap away at the screen and the AI types back while you're talking to Mother of in her womb. Um, this is probably the only adaptation where I feel like there's a change, which is specifically in the film when she asks, why is Ash so useless? You know, tell me why the science officer hasn't been able to do it. And it gives, um, it's like, oh, well, that's Special Order 937. And she finds out what a Special Order 937 from the company that sent them on this trip is. Ash has been told, investigate life form, gather specimen, priority one, ensure return of organism. Like, Ash has been assigned to get this organism back to Earth. And while it does say here all previous priorities rescinded, in the film there's an additional line saying crew expendable that I wish had made it into the comic. Yeah, it's a bit odd. It's like... I guess with the way that the panels currently are of how they're laid out, it's like in this second panel where that would go, there's not really room for one more line of text, but they could simply slightly alter the size of the font here. It's odd. Or just change some of the other wording to get the crew expendable in, because I feel like that's the real horror beat where you realize, oh, Ash has been happily letting them all die because he's been ordered by the company to let them all die if that's what it takes to get this thing back to Earth. Yeah, and we then get the whole reveal of him walking in, beating on her, trying to kill her for knowing too much. He, again, the the continued phallic imagery in this uh, the movie and the adaptation, he rolls up a newspaper and sticks it in her mouth to try and choke her to death on it. Yeah, and then, like, the rest of the crew shows up to try and fight him off. It's really hard. The reason being it's revealed that he's an android. You know, like, they cut his head off, and, like, there's wires and shit. And I think in the book, this sequence is one of the more awkward-feeling parts. Like, I think that compared to a lot of the rest of it, I don't think it quite captures as much of just the sense of... I guess just the pacing of the original scene, like, this all just feels quite fast. Yeah, in the movie, this is actually my favorite sequence. I think it's the scariest scene, and it's weird because it doesn't feature anything designed by H.R. Giga, but this moment of just, like, oh, this has been here this whole time, you have no idea. It's where a lot of the themes of, like, 
the comparison of the aliens using humans to survive and living off of these people, you know, in order for a person to live, for an alien to live, a person has to die. And the company's the same way. It will very happily use people. And it doesn't matter if it kills them for what they want. Yeah, it is, you know, just the evil of companies in the story cannot be more obvious. It only gets better in Aliens, actually. That's one of the things that I think is even better about Aliens than in Alien. But yeah. Yeah. Essentially, they then get Ash to talk to them a little bit. Does some explaining about the organism, but it's all very no shit to just... It's an organism that's just does what it does. No conscience. The bitch just eats. Funnily enough, he is actually still useless even when he's not trying to be. Truly, this man contributes nothing. Um, so, you know, they light him on fire. Um, I, I do miss the creepy milk yogurt mixture that they made poor Ian Holm, like, spit out of his mouth every time he talked during that bit. Yeah, yeah. I miss it. I miss, I miss the alien robot white goop stuff there's not the frothing here we just don't have as much page time to spend with this creepy traitor head uh yeah apparently in the film under the hot studio lights that stuff um went off real quick while they were filming so feel bad for ian holm everyone yeah fuck all that (laughs) but with ash taken care of that means there are three of them as many spaces as they have in the lifeboats and they all keep trying to make preparations but the xenomorph is gonna get got the other two and it's all gonna come down to ripley and jones uh to ripley and jonesy who conveniently shows up just in time for ripley to put her in a little cat carrier while we get our shot of the xenomorph mouth within the mouth making i think it's the first appearance in the comic as it gets we've seen it as like a second row of teeth but yeah this is the first like i have a weird little mouth that's gonna come out and penetrate your face and make it explode into blood yeah there's on the next page where ripley is walking we have this interesting little shift of like There's this mass on the floor, it's the alien, and it like slowly uncurls in a way that's like a cat unfolding its limbs. Yeah, it's it's a little like if your cat laid down in a box, except there's no box, (laughs) and the alien gets up and it's like shifts from like this sort of weird boxish shape to the shape of the alien. It's fun. Yeah. It's very well suited to being in a spaceship because since it's biomechanical, like, visually, it's got a lot of, like, tubes and ridges on it. And it really blends in with, like, the messy spaceship interior of all of the tubes and, like, ribbed surfaces and metal panels. And, like, here is a just an insane number of pipes, like, we're in a fucking brewery for some reason. I'm like, how, what, what, what on earth are you piping in this spaceship? So this thing has an unfair advantage. Yeah, perfect camouflage. And yeah, Ripley is basically going to struggle trying to blow up the main ship and make it onto the lifeboat ship in time. And just when she's like, I did it. Everything's going to be okay, Jonesy. 
um, I guess before I skip forward to that part, we also get, um, we get another splash page of just the explosion and it's pretty. It's just like these pretty circles of like solid red surrounded by green against the blue of space of just this gigantic blast radius. And it's just pretty and sells the explosion. Yeah, we, um, because she set the refinery bit and the actual ship to self-destruct, and she's now in the shuttlecraft. And she's like, oh, that's great. It will have died in the self-destruct. Thank goodness. And then she sees it once again just curled up like a cat into a space. And she has, of course, started taking her clothes off to get into, like, the hibernation pod, because you just, you sleep in that in, like, underwear and maybe a strip to cover your nipples. Um, she still has a shirt in this still, but she has to, like, she immediately sees it and runs and hides in the closet. Dons a suit, grabs some sort of sci-fi weapon. It's like a harpoon gun. Yeah, and it's essentially gonna become the, like, let me try and shoot you out the airlock. The alien is, like, you know, trying to hold on to the sides. She tries to shoot it out. And ultimately, I guess it's like a thruster or something like that on the ship that she uses to burn him up with the final line of dialogue. Guess again, you son of a bitch. And we see just like parts of it like crumbling into dust, essentially, like being just obliterated. Yeah, she starts up the um, the main engines and it starts flying off. Much like some of the other sequences, I think this sequence is very compressed for the comic. Um, like, the in the film, one of the best parts of it, like, in terms of, like, escalating tension is when she's trying to get the spacesuit on. Because she's like, oh, well, I can kill it if I get the airlock open, but I will die too. And so she has to try and get a spacesuit on without it noticing or coming to kill her. And in this, that happens in three panels. Yeah. It's like a full couple minutes of film. And here we're fully talking about just the last three pages of the book. And I think it really suffers from just the crunch it's on of having so little room to work all this in. And like, basically, she kills it. It's over. And like, you know, it's not like there's a lot more that happens in the movie. But just like with the way that this is all framed. There should be like two pages of just coming down from all that. Yeah, like there's just not enough room here to come down and feel like an actual ending, I guess. Like it just doesn't have the room to properly pace itself out and like let the reader like decompress and like loosen their shoulders a bit. I would kill to go back in time and give this team like double maybe even triple the page time to just dig into every moment because i think that every time they're able to dig into it it's fantastic and it all looks great and it's all like this is really really great considering you had to get this entire like five minute sequence of film onto a page yeah it's like i think this is the absolute best it could have been in this page count and there are parts of it that are legitimately great but there are also parts where the suffering is felt and it's just like there simply was not enough a lot of time. That said, I would still hardcore recommend this shit. It's so good. Yeah, it's great. Like, 
I think you could read and enjoy it even if you're not an Alien fan. But if you are an Alien fan, like us, and had never read this, pick this up. You'll want it. Just just to look at Walt Simonson drawing shit from the movie Alien. Yeah. I don't know how soon we'll ever cover any other Alien comics. Because the struggle, I think I can speak for both of us, has been trying to find something good in all of the Dark Horse blah, and then the Marvel ones mostly aren't good either. Yeah, the current Marvel series has just not been my thing. I've tried reading the first arc, and it made the first mistake you can ever make with an alien thing, which is it was about a man. It was about a man, and again, not to pile on, but simply it had a bunch of humans just people drawing and it was drawn by salvador la roca if salvador la roca wants to draw a comic where it is just xenomorphs and no humans i think that would look quite good actually that would be fine that would be (laughs) better than what we got it was also like a tragic lost fucked up relationship between a dad and his son too and it's just like alien isn't about dads yeah it's like I don't usually care for that sort of story in general because, I don't know, I'm just like in a place in my life where that doesn't interest me. It just feels kind of played out. You know, I'm not really like, I need to read about unhappy parent-son relationship. You know, like, it's whatever. But also drawn by Salvador La Roca, also being an alien story with no major female characters. That's so weird. It's just... For your first one out the gate, that's so weird. Um, and then there's the aliens, dark horse stuff. I've got, I've got an omnibus of like the f- the run of comics they did that are about Newton Hicks after the events of Aliens, which came out before Alien Three decided that what actually happened was they both just sort of died horribly twenty minutes later, leading directly into the events of Alien Three. And I won't call them bad. But I've been having a hard time getting into them. I think the art is actually quite nice on them. Um, the plot is very depressing and dark in the same ways that Alien 3 is. And, like, the thing about Alien 3 is if I'm in the right mood to watch that movie, that movie, if you watch the assembly cut, not the actual theatrical cut, is pretty good. The I'm, I'm not in the mood for that tone right now. <laughs> So the fact that the alternative to being killed off horribly in an opening title sequence for a so-so sequel movie was being in these comics where essentially equally horrible things happen to them, but now it's dragged over the course of years of their lives, and that is before the aliens show up again. Yeah, I don't know. And then and then most of the other stuff is like, from what I've seen and been able to get my hands on, it's like, here's Colonial Marines, and here's a robot person. I saw one comic where there's an alien who's talking. And on the cover is chomping a cigar. Um, in terms of alien spin-off material, I can recommend Cold Forge by, if I remember correctly, Alex White. I listened to the audiobook version of that. It's a novel. Really fucking good. And they've written another alien book that i will be listening to at some point that's probably also really fucking good i do have like listening to audiobooks and my sort of queue of things to get to yeah looking forward to those they're on hoopla yeah more hoopla rep in your 
podcast, although this time not for comics. With all that said, though, do we have any final notes, or should I transition to next week? Um, I mean, I could talk about Alien all day, but on the comics specifically, no. So next week, we are going to be discussing Void by Ranmaru Zarya. This is a single-volume BL manga. Chris knows that I was very wishy-washy in my decision of what my second Spooktober pick was going to be. I've had a copy of Devilman at my home for a week. (laughs) And like, yeah, like Coyote and Void and Devilman were all things I was bouncing back and forth between. And the others maybe we'll probably cover eventually at some point. But we're gonna go with Void. Largely I picked it just because we haven't talked about a BL title in months and I just really wanted to do one and just be like, oh, paranormal romance, that's spooky enough. Um, but yeah, we'll be discussing Void. It is digital only. It is in English through Sublime Manga. So you can like get a PDF copy through their sites or presumably more or less anywhere else you can buy digital comics. I wouldn't know about Amazon. I don't go there. Good luck with your broken comicsology. If nothing else, go to sublimemanga.com. The digital copies are all less than $10 last I knew. And... It's not, like, marketed as a horror title, but there are concepts and shit in it that I think are horrific, and I really want to talk about, and... It's probably still scarier than Doctor Who was. Yeah, which that's okay. Doctor Who was, like, our soft launch. <laughs> but... The puto one. It's, it's weirdly early in October because we're getting five Mondays in the month. Yeah, but next week we'll be talking about some horrifically unhealthy relationships between a man and an android. So there's your homework assignment, and thank you for listening, and bye. Bye. Press, press, and, 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 and.